Part Two of Fables in Slang by George Aid. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of Fables in Slang by George Aid. The Fable of the Copper and the Jovial Undergrads. One night, three well-bred young men who were entertained at the best houses wherever they went started out to wreck a college town. They licked two hackmen, set fire to an awning, pulled down many signs, and sent a brick through the front window of a tailor shop. All the residents of the town went into their houses and locked the doors. Terror brooded over the community. A copper heard the racket, and saw women and children fleeing to places of safety, so he gripped his club and ran ponderously, overtaking the three well-bred young men in a dark part of the street where they were engaged in tearing down a fence. He could not see them distinctly, and he made the mistake of assuming that they were drunken ruffians from the iron foundry, so he spoke harshly and told them to leave off breaking the man's fence. His tone and manner irritated the university men, who were not accustomed to rudeness from menials. One student who wore a sweater, and whose people butt into the society column with sickening regularity, started to tackle low. He had bushy hair and a thick neck, and his strong specialty was to swing on policemen and cabbies. At this his companion, whose great-grandmother had been one of the eight thousand close relatives of John Randolph, asked him not to kill the policeman. He said the fellow had made a mistake, that was all. They were not muckers, they were nice boys, intent on preserving the traditions of dear old alma mater. The copper could hardly believe it until they led him to a street lamp and showed him their engraved cards and junior society badges. Then he realized that they were all right. The third well-bred young man, whose male parent got his coin by wrecking a building association in Chicago, then announced that they were gentlemen and could pay for everything they broke. Thus it will be seen that they were rollicking college boys and not common rowdies. The copper perceiving that he had come very near getting gay with our first families, apologized for cutting in. The well-bred young men forgave him and then took his club away from him, just to demonstrate that there were no hard feelings. On the way back to the seat of learning, they captured a night watchman and put him down a manhole. Moral. Always select the right sort of parents before you start in to be rough. The Fable of the Professor Who Wanted to Be Alone Now it happens that in America a man who goes up hanging to a balloon is a professor. One day a professor, preparing to make a grand ascension, was sorely pestered by spectators of the yellow hammer variety, who fell over the stay ropes or crowded up close to the balloon to ask fool questions. They wanted to know how fur up he calculated to go, and was he afeard, and how often had he did it. The professor answered them in the surly manner peculiar to showmen accustomed to meet with a webfoot population. On the QT, the prof had troubles of his own. 
He was expected to drop in at a bank on the following day and take up a note for one hundred plunks. The ascension meant fifty to him, but how to corral the other fifty? That was the hard one. This question was in mind as he took hold of the trapeze bar and signaled the farmhands to let go. As he trailed skyward beneath the buoyant silken bag, he hung by his knees and waved a glad adieu to the mob of inquisitive yeomen. A sense of relief came to him as he saw the crowd sink away in the distance. Hanging by one toe and with his right palm pressed to his eyes, he said, Now that I am alone, let me think, let me think. There in the vast silence he thought. Presently he gave a sigh of relief. I will go to my wife's brother and make a quick touch, he said. If he refuses to unbelt, I will threaten to tell his wife of the bracelet he bought in Louisville. Having reached this happy conclusion, he loosened the parachute and quickly descended to earth. Moral. Avoid crowds. The Fable of a Statesman Who Couldn't Make Good Once there was a bluff whose long suit was glittering generalities. He hated to work, and it hurt his eyes to read law, but on a clear day he could be heard a mile, so he became a statesman. Whenever the foresters had a picnic, they invited him to make the principal address, because he was the only orator who could beat out the merry-go-round. The habit of dignity enveloped him. Upon his brow deliberation sat. He wore a fireman's mustache and a white lawn tie, and he loved to talk about the flag. At a clam-bake in 1884 he hurled defiance at all the princes and potentates of Europe and the sovereign voters, caught up by his matchless eloquence and unswerving courage, elected him to the legislature. While he was in the legislature he discovered that these United States were an asylum for the downtrodden and oppressed of the whole world, and frequently called attention to the fact. When someone asked him if he was cutting up any easy money, or would it be safe for a man with a watch to go to sleep in the same room with him, he would take a drink of water and begin to plead for Cuba. Once an investigating committee got after him, and he was about to be shown up for dallying with corporations, but he put on a fresh white tie and made a speech about our heroic dead on a hundred battlefields, and most people said it was simply impossible for such a thunderous patriot to be a crook. So he played the glittering generality stronger than ever. In due time he married a widow of the Bantam Division. The reason she married him was that he looked to her to be a coming congressman, and she wanted to get a whack at Washington society. Besides, she lived in a flat, and the janitor would not permit her to keep a dog. About ten days after they were married, he came home at four a.m. in a sea-going hack and was saturated. Next morning she had him up on the carpet and wanted to know how about it. He arose and put his right hand inside of his Prince Albert coat and began. Madam, he said, during a long and, I trust, not an altogether fruitless career as a servant of the people, I have always stood in the fierce light of publicity, and my record is an open book which he who runs may— Nix, Nix, she said, rapping for order with a teacup. Let go of the flying rings. Get back to the green earth. 
He dilated his nostrils and said, From the rock-bound hills of Maine in the north to the Everglades of Florida. Forget the Everglades, she said, rapping again. That superheated atmosphere may have a certain tonic effect on the hydrocephalus voter, but if you want to adjust yourself with wifey, you come down to cases. So he went out after breakfast and bought a $22 hat in order to square himself. Moral. Some women should be given the right to vote. The Fable of the Brash Drummer and the Peach Who Learned That There Were Others A well-fixed mortgage shark, residing at a way-station, had a daughter whose experience was not as large as her prospective bankroll. She had all the component parts of a peach, but she didn't know how to make a showing, and there was nobody in town qualified to give her a quiet hunch. She got her fashion hints from a trade catalog, and took her tips on etiquette and behavior from the questions and answers department of an agricultural monthly. The girl and her father lived in a big white house with evergreen trees and whitewashed doornicks in front of it, and a wind pump at the rear. Father was a good deal the same kind of man as David Harum, except that he didn't let go of any Christmas presents or work the soft pedal when he had a chance to apply a crimp to some widow who had seen better days. In fact, daughter was the only one on earth who could induce him to loosen up. Now, it happened that there came to this town every thirty days a brash drummer who represented a tobacco house. He was a gabby young man, and he could articulate at all times whether he had anything to say or not. One night at a lawn fete given by the ladies of the Methodist congregation he met daughter. She noticed that his trousers did not bag at the knees, also that he wore a superb ring. They strolled under the maples, and he talked what is technically known as hot air. He made an impression considerably deeper than himself. She promised to correspond. On the occasion of his next visit to the way-station, he let her wear his ring and made a wish, while she took him riding in the phaeton. He began to carry her photograph in his watch and show it to the boys employed at the house. Sometimes he would fold over one of her letters so they could see how it started out. He said the old man had nothing but, and he proposed to make it a case of marry. Truly it seemed that he was the principal cake in the pantry, and little did he suspect that he could be frosted. But daughter, after much pleading, induced father to send her to a finishing school in the East. A finishing school is a place at which young ladies are taught how to give the quick finish to all persons who won't do. At school the daughter tied up with a chum who seldom overlooked a Wednesday matinee, and she learned more in three weeks than her childhood home could have shown her in three centuries. Now she began to see the other kind, the kind that wears a cutaway with a white flower in the morning, a, a frock with violets in the afternoon, and a jimmy little tuxedo at night. For the first time she began to listen to harness that had chains to it and she rode in vehicles that permitted her to glance in at the second stories. She stopped wearing hats and began to choose confections. She selected them languidly, three at a time. Then the bill to the way station and farther down with heart failure. 
She kept Mr. Southern's picture on her dresser, with two red candles burning in front of it. And every time she thought of Gabby Will, the crackerjack salesman, she reached for the peau d'Espagne and sprayed herself. One day, when the tobacco salesman came up Main Street with his grips on his way to visit the trade, he met the drug clerk who told him that she was home on a visit. So he hurried through with his work, got a shave, changed ends on his cuffs, pared his nails, bought a box of marshmallows, and went out to the house. Daughter was on the lawn, seated under a canopy that had set father back thirty-two dollars. There was a hired hand sprinkling the grass with a hose, and as Will, the conversational drummer, came up the long walk, daughter called to the hired hand and said, Johnson, there is a strange man coming up the walk. Change the direction of the stream somewhat, else you may dampen him. The drummer approached her, feeling of his necktie, and wondered if she would up and kiss him right in broad daylight. She didn't. Daughter allowed a rose-colored booklet by Guy de Maupassant to sink among the folds of her French gown, and then she looked at him and said, All goods must be delivered at the rear. Don't you know me? he asked. Rully, it seems to me I have seen you somewhere, she replied. But I can't place you. Are you the man who tunes the piano? Don't you remember the night I met you at the lawn fete? he asked, and then, chump that he was, and all rattled, he told her his name, instead of giving her the scorching comeback that he composed next day when it was too late. I met so many people traveling about, she said. I can't remember all of them, you know. I dare say you called to see Papa. He will be here presently. Then she gave him someone's else, neither a savoir-faire, and a few other crisp ones hot from the finishing school, after which she asked him how the dear villagers were coming on. He reminded her that he did not live in the town. She said, only fancy, and he said he guessed he'd have to be going, as he had promised a man to meet him at Jordan's store before the bank closed. As he moved toward the St. Nicholas Hotel, he kept his hand on his solar plexus. At five o'clock he rode out of town on a local. Moral. Anybody can win, unless there happens to be a second entry. The Fable of Sister May, who did as well as could be expected. Two sisters lived in Chicago, the home of opportunity. Luella was a good girl, who had taken prizes at the Mission Sunday School, but she was plain, much. Her features did not seem to know the value of teamwork. Her clothes fit her intermittently, as it were. She was what would be called a lumpy dresser. But she had a good heart. Luella found employment at a hat factory. All she had to do was to put red linings in the hats for the country trade, and every Saturday evening when work was called on account of darkness, the boss met her as she went out and crowded three dollars on her. The other sister was different. She began as Mary, then changed to Marie, and her finish was May. From earliest youth she had lacked industry and application. She was short on intellect, but long on shape. The vain pleasures of the world attracted her, 
By skipping the long words, she could read how Rupert Brainsford led Sybil Gray into the conservatory and made love that scorched the begonias. Sometimes she just ached to light out with an opera company. When she couldn't stand up Luella for any more car fare, she went out looking for work and hoping she wouldn't find it. The sagacious proprietor of a lunchroom employed her as cashier. In a little while she learned to count money and could hold down the job. Marie was a strong card. The male patrons of the establishment hovered around the desk long after paying their checks. Within a month the receipts of the place had doubled. It was often remarked that Marie was a pippin. Her date-book had to be kept on the double-entry system. Although her grammar was sad, it made no odds. Her picture was on many a button. A credit man from the wholesale house across the street told her that any time she wanted to see the telegraph poles rush past, she could tear transportation out of his book. But Marie turned him down for a bucket-shop man who was not handsome but was awful generous. They were married and went to live in a flat with a quarter-sawed oak chiffonier and pink rugs. She was May at this stage of the game. Shortly after this, Wheat jumped twenty-two points, and the husband didn't do a thing. May bought a thumb-ring and a pug-dog, and began to speak of the Swede help as the maid. Then she decided that she wanted to live in a house, because in a flat one could never be sure of one's neighbors. So they moved into a sarcophagus on the boulevard, right in between two old families who had made their money soon after the fire, and ice began to form on the hottest days. May bought an automobile and blew her allowance against beauty doctors. The smell of cooking made her faint, and she couldn't see where the working classes came in at all. When she attended the theater, a box was none too good. Husband went along, in evening clothes and a yachting cap, and he had two large diamonds in his shirt-front. Sometimes she went to a Wagner concert and sat through it, and she wouldn't admit any more that the Russell brothers, as the Irish chambermaids, hit her just about right. She was determined to break into society if she had to use an axe. At last she got there, but it cost her many a reed-bird and several gross of cold quartz. In the heyday of prosperity did May forget Luella? No. Indeed. She took Luella away from the hat factory, where the pay was three dollars a week, and gave her a position as assistant cook at five dollars. Moral. Industry and perseverance bring a sure reward. The Fable of How the Fool-Killer Backed Out of a Contract The Fool-Killer came along the Pike Road one day and stopped to look at a strange sight. Inside of a barricade were several thousand men, women, and children. They were moving restlessly among the trampled weeds, which were clotted with watermelon rinds, chicken bones, straw, and torn paper bags. It was a very hot day. The people could not sit down. They shuffled wearily and were pop-eyed with lassitude and discouragement. A stifling dust enveloped them. They gasped and sniffled. Some tried to alleviate their suffering by gulping down a pink beverage made of drugstore acid which fed the fires of thirst. Thus they wove and interwove in the smoky oven. 
the whimper or the faltering wail of children, the quavering sigh of overlaced women, and the long-drawn profanity of men. These were what the fool-killer heard as he looked upon the suffering throng. Is this a new wrinkle on Dante's Inferno? he asked of the man on the gate, who wore a green badge marked Marshall, and was taking tickets. No, sir, this is a country fair, was the reply. Why do the people congregate in the weeds and allow the sun to warp them? Because everybody does it. Do they pay to get in? You know it. Can they escape? They can, but they prefer to stick. The fool-killer hefted his club and then looked at the crowd and shook his head doubtfully. I can't tackle that outfit today, he said. It's too big a job. So he went on into town and singled out a Main Street merchant who refused to advertise. Moral People who expect to be loony will find it safer to travel in a bunch. The Fable of the Caddy Who Hurt His Head While Thinking One day a caddy sat in the long grass near the ninth hole and wondered if he had a soul. His number was twenty-seven, and he almost had forgotten his real name. As he sat and meditated, two players passed him. They were going the long round, and the frenzy was upon them. They followed the gutta-percha balls with the intense swiftness of trained bird-dogs, and each talked feverishly of brassy lies, and getting past the bunker, and lofting to the green, and slicing into the bramble, each telling his own game to the ambient air, and ignoring what the other fellow had to say. As they did the St. Andrew's full swing for eighty yards apiece, and then followed through with the usual explanation of how it happened, the caddy looked at them and reflected that they were much inferior to his father. His father was too serious a man to get out in Mardi Gras clothes and hammer a ball from one red flag to another. His father worked in a lumber yard. He was an earnest citizen who seldom smiled, and he knew all about the silver question of how J. Pierpont Morgan done up a free people on the bond issue. The caddy wondered why it was that his father, a really great man, had to shove lumber all day and could seldom get one dollar to rub against another, while these superficial johnnies who played golf all the time had money to throw at the birds. The more he thought, the more his head ached. Moral. Don't try to account for anything. The Fable of the Martyr Who Liked the Job Once, in a country town, there was a man with a weak back. He could put a grindstone into the farm wagon if anyone wanted to bet him the cigars, but every time he lifted an axe, something caught him right in the spine, and he had to go into the house and lie down. So his wife took boarders and did the cooking herself. He was willing to divide the labor, however, so he did the marketing only. When he had bought the victuals, he would squat on a shoe-box with the basket between his legs and say that he couldn't see what Congress was thinking of. He had certain theories in regard to the Alaskan boundary, and he was against any Anglo-American alliance, because Uncle Sam could take care of himself at any turn in the road, coming right down to it. 
and the American people was superior to any other nationality in every way, shape, manner, and form, as far as that's concerned. Then his wife would have to send word for him to come on with the groceries so she could get dinner. Nearly everybody sympathized with her because she had to put up with such a big hulk of a no-account husband. She was looked upon as a martyr. One day the husband was sunstruck, being too lazy to move into the shade, and next day he passed away without an effort. The widow gave him the best funeral of the year, and then put all the money she could rake and scrape into a marble shaft marked, At Rest. A good many people said she was better off without him, and it was certainly a good riddance of bad rubbish. They hoped that if she ever married again she'd pick out somebody that wasn't afraid to work and had gumption enough to pound sand into a rat-hole. There was general satisfaction when she became the wife of Mr. Gladden, who owned the general store. He built a new house, hired a girl, and had the washing sent out. She could go into the store and pick out anything she wanted, and he took her riding in his new runabout every evening. Consequently, she was very miserable, thinking of the jewels she had lost. Moral. If the woman thinks he's all right, you keep on your own side of the fence. The Fable of the Bohemian Who Had Hard Luck Once upon a time there was a brilliant but unappreciated chap who was such a thorough bohemian that strangers usually mistook him for a tramp. Would he brush his clothes? Not he. When he wore a collar, he was ashamed of himself. He had pipe-ashes on his coat and vest. He seldom combed his hair and never shaved. Every evening he ate an imitation dinner at a forty-cent table de haute with a bottle of writing fluid thrown in. He had formed a little salon of geniuses who also were out of work, and they loved to loll around on their shoulder-blades and laugh bitterly at the world. The main bohemian was an author. After being turned down by numerous publishers, he had decided to write for posterity. Posterity hadn't heard anything about it and couldn't get out an injunction. He knew his works were good, because all the free and untrammeled souls in the spaghetti joint told him so. He would read them a little thing of his own, about wandering in the fields with Lesbia. And then he would turn to a friend whose face was all covered with human ivy and ask him point-blank, Is it, or is it not, better than the dually stuff? There is no comparison, would be the reply coming through the foliage. Wandering in the fields with Lesbia, Lesbia would have done well. If he had wandered in the fields at any time, he would have been pinched on suspicion that he was out for turnips. The sure-enough bohemian was a scathing critic. If Brander Matthews only knew some of the things said about him, there would be tear-marks on his pillow, and howls, too. Bah! My, but he was caustic. The way he burned up magazine writers, it's a wonder they didn't get after him for arson. One day, while standing on the front stoop at his boarding-house, trying to think of someone who would submit to a touch, a flower-pot fell from a window-ledge above him and hit him on the head. He was put into an ambulance and taken to a hospital, where the surgeons clipped his hair short, in order to take three stitches. 
While he was still unconscious and therefore unable to resist, they scrubbed him with Castile soap, gave him a good shave, and put him into a snowy white gown. His friends heard of the accident and went to the hospital to offer condolence. When they found him, he was so clean and commonplace that they lost all respect for him. Moral Get a good make-up and the part plays itself. The Fable of the Coming Champion Who Was Delayed In a certain athletic club which rented two rooms over a tin shop, there was one boy who could put it all over the other members. He knew how to jab and counter and uppercut and bore in with the left and play for the wind. He had lumps on his arms and a good pair of shoulders, and everyone in the club told him he had the makings of a world-beater. He used to coax grocery clerks and grammar school children to put on the gloves with him, and then he would go around them like a copper around a barrel and trim them right and proper. His friends would stand and watch him make monkeys of these anemic amateurs, and gradually the conviction grew within them that he could lick anybody of his weight. The boy believed them when they told him he ought to go after the top-notchers. He gave up his job in the planning mill and became a pugilist. The proprietor of a cigar store acted as his manager and began to pay his board. This manager was Foxy. He told the boy that before tackling the championship class it would be better to go out and beat a lot of fourth-raters, thereby building up a reputation and at the same time getting here and there a mess of the long green. In the same town there was an undertaker who had sporting blood in his veins, and he sought out the manager and made a match in behalf of an unknown. The boy went into training in a stable. He had a yellow punching bag, a sponge, a bathrobe, and several towels. Two paper hangers who were out of work acted as his trainers. They rubbed him with witch hazel all day, and in the evening the boy stood around in a sweater and talked out of the corner of his mouth. He said he was trained to the minute and hard as nails and fit as a fiddle, and he would make Mr. Unknown jump out of the ring. As the day of the battle approached, it came out that the Unknown was a scrapper who had been fairly successful at one time, but had ceased to be a live one several years before. He was imported especially for this contest, with the coming champion. When he arrived in town, it was evident that he lacked condition. He had been dieting himself on pie and beer, and any expert, such as the cigar store man, could tell by looking at him that his abdomen was not hard enough to withstand those crushing body blows such as the boy was in the habit of landing on the punching bag. Accordingly, the word went around that the imported pug was too fat and had bad wind. It began to resemble a cinch. The manager went out and bet more money, and the coming champion was nervous for fear that he would kill the has-been if he connected too strong on the point of the jaw. He thought it would be better to wear him down with short-arm blows and make him quit. He had read that it was dangerous to punish a physical wreck who might have heart trouble or something like that. The boy was a professional pugilist, but he had humane instincts. When the boy came to the train which was to carry the participants and the spectators to the battlefield, he was attended by four comrades who had ice, beef, tea, 
brandy, alcohol, blankets, and other paraphernalia. They made a couch for him in the baggage car, and had him lie down so that he might conserve all his strength and step into the ring as fresh as possible. The so-called unknown had no one to handle him. He sat alone in the men's car, with a queer telescope valise on his knees, and he smoked a cigarette, which was in direct violation of all the rules of training. At last the company arrived at the secluded spot, and a ring was staked out. The coming champion was received with loud cheers. He wore a new pair of gymnasium shoes, spotless trunks, and around his waist was an American flag presented by his admirers in the athletic club. In a few moments the imported scrapper came into the ring, attended by the sporty undertaker. He wore an old pair of bike shoes and faded work trousers, chopped off at the knees. While his belt was a shawl strap, he was chewing gum. After he put on the gloves, he looked over at the coming champion and remarked to the undertaker that he, the coming champion, seemed to be a nice young fellow, after which he yawned slightly and wanted to know what time they would get a train back to town. The bell rang, and there in the center of the ring stood the tottering has-been and the coming champion. The has-been was crouched, with his head drawn in, turtle fashion. His legs spraddled, and, oh, the hard, vicious expression on that face, as he fiddled short and looked intently at the coming champion's feet. This was a very confusing and unprofessional thing to do, as the boy had not been accustomed to boxing with people who looked at his feet. He wondered if there was anything the matter with his gymnasium shoes. In a moment or two he saw that the physical wreck was afraid to lead, so he did some nimble footwork, and his gloves began to describe parabolas. Then, all at once, somebody turned off the sunshine. They threw cold water on him, held a bottle of ammonia to his nose, and stuck pins in under his fingernails. At last his eyelids fluttered, and he turned a dim and flimsy gaze on his faithful seconds gathered about him. Oh, how the birds sing, he murmured. And see, the aurora borealis is trying to climb over Payne's fireworks. Cheer up, said the manager. He took a mean advantage of you and hit you when you wasn't looking. Ah, uh, yes, it all comes back to me. Did I win? Not quite, replied the manager, who feared to tell him the whole truth. You say he hit me? asked the coming champion. Yes. With a casting? We couldn't tell he was in such a hurry. All this time the victor was sitting on the station platform with the undertaker. He was remarking that it seemed to be a very purty country thereabouts, and he often wished he could close in on enough of the gilt to buy him a nice piece of land somewhere, inasmuch as he regarded a farmer as the most independent man on earth. Next week there was a familiar name back on the time card at the planning mill. Moral in all the learned professions, many are called, but few are chosen. The Fable of the Lawyer Who Brought in a Minority Report At a bazaar, the purpose of which was to hold up the public for the benefit of a worthy cause, there were many schemes to induce visitors to let go of their assets. 
One of the most likely grafts perpetrated by the astute management was a voting contest to determine who was the most beautiful and popular young lady in the city. It cost ten cents to cast one vote. The winner of the contest was to receive a beautiful vase with roses on it. A prominent young lawyer who was eloquent, good-looking, and a leader in society had been selected to make the presentation speech after the votes had been counted. In a little while the contest had narrowed down until it was evident that either the brewer's daughter or the contractor's daughter was the most beautiful and popular young lady in the city. The brewer and his friends pushed ten-dollar bills into the ballot-box, while the contractor, just before the polls closed, slipped in a check for one hundred dollars. When the votes were counted, the management of the bazaar was pleased to learn that the sixty-cent vase had netted over seven hundred dollars. It was announced that the contractor's daughter was exactly nine dollars and twenty cents more beautiful and popular than the brewer's daughter. Thereupon the committee requested that the eloquent young lawyer step to the rostrum and make the presentation speech. There was no response. The young lawyer had disappeared. One of the members of the committee started on a search for him and found him in a dusky corner of the Japanese tea-room under the paper lanterns, making a proposal of marriage to a poor girl who had not received one vote. Moral. Never believe a relative. The Fable of the Two Mandolin Players and the Willing Performer A very attractive debutante knew two young men who called on her every Thursday evening and brought their mandolins along. They were conventional young men of the kind that you see wearing spring overcoats in the clothing advertisements. One was named Fred and the other was Eustace. The mothers of the neighborhood often remarked what perfect manners Fred and Eustace have. Merely as an aside, it may be added that Fred and Eustace were more popular with the mothers than they were with the younger set, although no one could say a word against either of them. Only it was rumored in keen society that they didn't belong. The fact that they went calling in a crowd and took their mandolins along may give the acute reader some idea of the life that Fred and Eustace held out to the young woman of their acquaintance. The debutante's name was Myrtle. Her parents were very watchful, and did not encourage her to receive callers, except such as were known to be exemplary young men. Fred and Eustace were a few of those who escaped the blacklist. Myrtle always appeared to be glad to see them, and they regarded her as a darned swell girl. Fred's cousin came from St. Paul on a visit, and one day in the street he saw Myrtle and noticed that Fred tipped his hat and gave her a stage smile. "'Oh, Queen of Sheba!' exclaimed the cousin from St. Paul, whose name was Gus, as he stood stock still and watched Myrtle's reversible plaid disappear around a corner. "'She's a bird. Do you know her well?' "'I know her quite well.' replied Fred coldly. She is a charming girl. She is all of that. You're a great describer. And now what night are you going to take me around to call on her? Fred very naturally hemmed and hawed. It must be remembered that Myrtle was a member of an excellent family and had been schooled in the proprieties. And it was not to be supposed that she would crave the society of slangy old Gus, who 
had an abounding nerve, and furthermore was as fresh as the mountain air. He was the kind of fellow who would see a girl twice, and then upon meeting her the third time he would go up and straighten her cravat for her and call her by her first name. Put him into a strange company, en route to a picnic, and by the time the baskets were unpacked he would have a blonde all to himself, and she would have traded her fan for his college pin. If a fair looker on the street happened to glance at him hard, he would run up and seize her by the hand and convince her that they had met, and he always got away with it, too. In a department store, while waiting for the cash-boy to come back with the change, he would find out the girl's name, her favorite flower, and where a letter would reach her. Upon entering a parlor car at St. Paul, he would select a chair next to the most promising one in sight and ask her if she cared to have the shade lowered. Before the train cleared the yards, he would have the porter bringing a footstool for the lady. At Hastings, he would be asking her if she wanted something to read. At Red Wing, he would be telling her that she resembled Maxine Elliott and showing her his watch, left to him by his grandfather, a prominent Virginian. At La Crosse, he would be reading the menu card to her and telling her how different it is when you have someone to join you in a bite. At Milwaukee, he would go out and buy a bouquet for her, and when they rode into Chicago, they would be looking out of the same window, and he would be arranging for her baggage with the transfer man. After that, they would be old friends. Now, Fred and Eustace had been at school with Gus, and they had seen his work, and they were not disposed to introduce him into one of the most exclusive homes in the city. They had known Myrtle for many years, but they did not dare to address her by her first name, and they were positive that if Gus attempted any of his usual tactics with her, she would be offended, and, naturally enough, they would be blamed for bringing him to the house. But Gus insisted. He said he had seen Myrtle, and she suited him from the ground up, and he proposed to have friendly doings with her. At last they told him they would take him if he promised to behave. Fred warned him that Myrtle would frown down any attempt to be familiar on short acquaintance, and Eustace said that as long as he had known Myrtle he had never presumed to be free and forward with her. He had simply played the mandolin. That was as far along as he had ever got. Gus told them not to worry about him. All he asked was a start. He said he was a willing performer, but as yet he never had been disqualified for crowding. Fred and Eustace took this to mean that he would not overplay his attentions, so they escorted him to the house. As soon as he had been presented, Gus showed her where to sit on the sofa. Then he placed himself about six inches away and began to buzz, looking her straight in the eye. He said that when he first saw her he mistook her for Miss Prentice, who was said to be the most beautiful girl in St. Paul. Only when he came closer he saw that it couldn't be Miss Prentice, because Miss Prentice didn't have such lovely hair. Then he asked her the month of her birth and told her fortune thereby coming nearer to holding her hand within eight minutes than Eustace had come in a lifetime. "'Play something, boys,' he ordered, just as if he had paid them money to come along and make music for him. They unlimbered their mandolins and began to play a Sousa march. He asked Myrtle if she had seen the new moon. She replied that she had not, so they went outside. 
When Fred and Eustace finished the first piece, Gus appeared at the open window and asked them to play the Georgia Camp Meeting, which had always been one of his favorites. So they played that, and when they had concluded there came a voice from the outer darkness, and it was the voice of Myrtle. She said, I'll tell you what to play. Play the intermezzo. Fred and Eustace exchanged glances. They began to perceive that they had been backed into a siding, with a few potted palms in front of them and two cards from the Union they would have been just the same as a hired orchestra. But they played the intermezzo and felt peevish. Then they went to the window and looked out. Gus and Myrtle were sitting in the hammock, which had quite a pitch toward the center. Gus had braced himself by holding to the back of the hammock. He did not have his arm around Myrtle, but he had it extended in a line parallel with her back. What he had done wouldn't justify a girl in saying, Sir! But it started a real scandal with Fred and Eustace. They saw that the only way to get even with her was to go home without saying good night. So they slipped out the side door, shivering with indignation. After that, for several weeks, Gus kept Myrtle so busy that she had no time to think of considering other candidates. He sent books to her mother, and allowed the old gentleman to take chips away from him at poker. They were married in the autumn, and father-in-law took Gus into the firm, saying that he had needed a good pusher for a long time. At the wedding, the two mandolin players were permitted to act as ushers. Moral to get a fair trial of speed, use a pacemaker. The Fable of the Man Who Didn't Care for Storybooks Once there was a blue dyspeptic who attempted to kill time by reading novels, until he discovered that all books of fiction were a mockery. After a prolonged experience, he came to know that every specimen of light reading belonged to one of the following divisions. 1. The book that promises well until you reach the plot, and then you remember that you read it summer before last. 2. The book with the author's picture as a frontispiece. The author is very cocky. He has his overcoat thrown back so as to reveal the silk lining. That settles it. 3. The book that runs into a snarl of dialect on the third page and never gets out. 4. The delectable yarn about a doormat thief who truly loves the opium fiend. Jolly story of the slums. 5. The book that begins with a twenty-page description of sloppy weather. Long swirls of riven rain beat somberly upon the misty panes, etc., etc. You turn to the last chapter to see if it rains all the way through the book. This last chapter is a giveaway. It condenses the whole plot and dishes up the conclusion. After that, who would have the nerve to wade through the two hundred and forty intermediate pages? 6. The book in which the pictures tell the story. After you have seen the pictures, there is no need to wrestle with the text. 7. The book that begins with a murder mystery. Charming picture of gray-haired man discovered dead in his library. Blood splashed all over the furniture. Knife of curious design lying on floor. 
You know at once that the most respected and least suspected personage in the book committed the awful crime, but you haven't the heart to track him down and compel him to commit suicide. 8. The book that gets away with one man asking another, By Jove, who is that dazzling beauty in the box? The man who asks this question has a name which sounds like the title of a sleeping car. You feel instinctively that he is going to be all mixed up with that girl in the box before Chapter 12 is reached. But who can take any real interest in the love affairs of a man with such a name? 9. The book that tells all about society and how tough it is. Even the women drink brandy and soda, smoke cigarettes and gamble. The clever man of the world who says all the killing things is almost as funny as Ally Slopper. An irritable person after reading nine chapters of this kind of high life would be ready to go home and throw his grandmother into the fire. 10. The dull gray book, or the simple annals of John Gardenass, a careful study of American life. In chapter one he walks along the lane, stepping first on one foot and then on the other, enters a house by the door, and sits in a four-legged wooden chair looking out through a window with glass in it. Book denotes careful observation. Nothing happens until page 150. Then John decides to sell the cow. In the final chapter he sits on a fence and whittles. True story, but what's the use? Why continue? The dyspeptic said that when he wanted something really fresh and original in the line of fiction, he read the prospectus of a mining corporation. Moral. Only the more rugged mortals should attempt to keep up on current literature. End of Part 2 of Fables in Slang by George Ade End of Fables in Slang by George Ade